1: I'm focusing on expressing the music. I mean, there's the psychology of the music, there's the accents, there's the rhythm, there's the color of the notes. I mean, there's so many aspects to it, and I'm intuitively expressing something I want to express from that. Something, anything. Another choreographer would express something else.
2: Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam.
0: And I am your other host, Isaac Butler.
2: And the other voice we just heard belongs to Annie B. Parson.
0: Isaac, tell me who Annie B. is, please. Annie B. Parsons. She's a choreographer. She's a writer. She's a director. She is. I, I like to think of her as a creator of things. Although I think she's primarily known as a choreographer. That you know, most of the things she creates are bodies arranged in space. Uh, she has her own company, Big Dance Theater, which she co-founded with Molly Hickok and Paul Lazar. Uh, and that company does these really wild, fascinating pieces that combine text, and dance, so dance and theater, in these really innovative ways. But she also has a career as a freelance choreographer. She's worked on musicals. She's worked on films. She's worked with musicians on concerts and tours and TV appearances. Uh, She choreographed two tours by St. Vincent, uh, and she has a longstanding collaboration with David Byrne, which we'll talk about quite a bit in the interview.
2: You know, when I think of choreography, I don't think of rock stars on tour. I think of someone like Balanchine, you know, the founder of the New York City Ballet, a grandmaster with devotees and acolytes and this sort of serious reputation in the culture and an ego that's the same size as that reputation. I think that that's maybe a really old-fashioned preconception of what a choreographer is.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, when did Balanchine die, right? I mean, well, it was, I mean you know, <laughs> before I was
2: born, you know. Yeah, so. exactly.
0: <laughs> so... Yeah, we do have this kind of image of what choreographers are and what they do. And I think some choreographers probably try to live up to that image, right? But there's also the real people. And most choreographers, uh, just like most writers, they're working artists right that's they have a job and they have an art and hopefully those are the two same two things you know i even think about someone like mark morris right who's who does who has his own company that's a big deal and his own school and all this stuff and you know i, I once did an event with him where he and i were both invited to pitch work we were developing at this conference of touring presenters and i, I just couldn't believe that i was doing the same event with mark morris i went up to talk to him for a bit and, you know He's just a guy. He's a working artist, you know, at a very high level, but he's still got his job and his work and his company and everything like that. And, you know, it's just all those sort of normal things that that life entails are very present as well.
2: Can you tell me a little about Parsons' most recent work? We're going to hear a little snippet of it in your interview. Uh, But what is American Utopia?
0: So American Utopia is an evening-length concert performance by the great David Byrne, and you can actually see it right now, or maybe wait until after you've listened to this episode, because a live taping of the show was filmed by Spike Lee and is currently streamable on HBO Max. American Utopia started as a touring concert. You'll hear us talk a bit about some of the differences between the two versions in the episode, and then it was adapted for Broadway, and Annie B really essentially directed the show. I don't think she's billed as the director director she's billed as the choreographer of musical staging or something like that but she really determined everything that those bodies are doing during the performance
2: everything that bodies are doing is a very useful way of thinking about what choreography is and i learned that during this interview before we get to that interview though i want to take a second to remind everyone listening about the importance of slate plus If you enjoy this podcast and the rest of Slate's journalism, please consider supporting us by joining Slate+. Plus. Those of you who are already members are going to hear a little more from Isaac's conversation with Annie B. Parson, which is just one more benefit of your membership. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and of course you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only a dollar for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com. Slash working plus. All right, now let's get to Isaac's conversation with Annie B. Parson.
0: Annie B. Parson. I'm so excited to have you on this show to talk about your work and your creative process. Uh, I thought we could start by talking about the most recent piece you've created. Uh, It's a video, which actually our listeners can go see on YouTube right now, called Six Feet. You made it back in March 2020 when social distancing was first starting, and it combines footage of a previous work of yours, danced by the Martha Graham Dance Company, with uh, some music and original narration and, and all sorts of fascinating things. Let's take a listen to that really quick, and then I'd love to hear about how you made it.
1: I typed into my browser, most days I feel like, but these days are different than most days. These days are not most days. I am a choreographer, so most days, in those days, I was either preparing for rehearsal or in a rehearsal. Most days, in those days, I would go into a studio and work with dancers with our bodies in close proximities. These days, issues of proximity are not just issues for choreographers, but are in focus for everyone. Six feet proximities, six feet apart, an elegant composition.
0: How did you write the narration part? Was that just like a free writing you did?
1: Oh gosh, well, the thing is, I think that takes us back to March 2020, which is a really funny feeling because so much has happened. It was definitely something that i just sat down and wrote and it was based on looking at the world spatially because for the first time i realized right away with covid that people were becoming dancers in that their spatial awareness was growing they were literally we were literally afraid of each other's presences We were backing away from each other on the street. Remember, we were walking in the bike lanes. We were right, yeah, totally. Our bodies were very, very alive. um, Unfortunately, with this sort of negative sense of contagion, but nevertheless, it was a choreography that was being learned, and I was fascinated by it. So I sat down and wrote about it, about what the world looked like from a spatial perspective.
0: Hmm. You know, I'll admit, I was very, very moved by six feet when i was watching it yesterday and it really made me think about choreography differently because i feel like i don't know in some weird sense you know those of us who aren't in the dance world we're we're taught to think of choreography as this very abstract highfalutin uh almost indescribable thing but at the same time it's this very mundane concrete thing it's just bodies in space moving and what could be more normal than that you know
1: Thank you, Isaac. I so appreciate you saying that. I mean, choreography is simply the organization, the aesthetic organization of bodies in space. And it could be stillness, it can be, you know, pedestrian actions, it could be anything. Um, and I don't know why we're taught, as you say, to think of it in this highfalutin way. I don't understand our relationship to choreography as a culture. And the negative use of the word all the time. I heard it this morning, the choreography. If if something in politics is happening negative, it's usually called either theater or choreography.
0: Your two fields.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's fascinating because I do think of your choreography specifically as combining sort of those three categories of movement. You were talking about stillness and then very kind of everyday you know, mundane gestures drawn from life and then, and then much more abstract forms. Is your relationship to sort of those three things intuitive as you're working on a piece or?
1: Boy, um, well, the use of space, I think, is a craft. And once you have craft over time, it becomes intuitive how you use it. But it's something that I quote unquote work on the way like a pianist would practice scales every day.
0: Amazing. So how do you how do you do that since you don't have a, you know, a pianist can practice scales in a very concrete way. (laughs) How do you practice arranging still bodies in space?
1: I think about it. It's like I'm stoned. I look at stuff. I take walks and I look at the world and I, you know, like just now I was down by the water in our neighborhood and I saw a van. I wish I could. I took a picture of it. I'll send it to you. But a van that was packed with someone's belongings So tight, I'd never ever seen anything packed so tight in my life, and it was such a beautiful example of density and in proximity in space. So yeah, I'm kind of stoned when it comes to looking at space. (laughs) I think it's perception, you know. (laughs)
0: And and so you think about, you know, how can I arrange bodies in a way that's that? Yeah,
1: how can I use that? Or you look at an ear of corn, or you know, like nature is expressing itself through the way it uses space. Two trees. Um, in agreement of how to use the space. It's everywhere. So yeah, so I just look at it.
0: <laughs> well, you know, one of the ways our listeners can see how you work with bodies in space very easily right now is to stream David Byrne's American Utopia on HBO Max, the Broadway production, which you choreographed and recently taped by uh, Spike Lee and released, I guess, in, during the, the pandemic. You've worked with David Byrne a few times now. I imagine that you've sort of developed a kind of collaborative process together. Uh, What are the sort of fundamentals of that process for you?
1: Oh, fun question. Um, I have worked with David on many, many projects for about over 10 years, maybe 15. It's musical. It's aesthetic. It's his sensibility, which I kind of grew up with. I don't know if he would agree, but to me, there's a really brilliant uh, sense of irony, almost in the way Flaubert uses irony. Um, A coolness, which he's sort of developed into something else in the past few years. But I think all that I was translating into movement. Whenever I work with him, the stuff I make for him is different than the stuff I make for someone else or for myself because I'm inspired by his sensibility. And I have a feeling when I'm listening to the music of what to do often, not always. And some of it has to do with not moving. And some of it has to do with very, very complex movements, phrasing, musicality, And again, where people are in stage. And Spike Lee had a really great respect for that and tried as hard as he could to figure out how to get that on film.
0: Right, you mentioned that a lot of the inspiration comes sort of immediately from the music. Are you, do you play music? Are you a musician or?
1: No, but um, what I do is David, also I'm, I'm very familiar with how David dances so I can get in his body basically. So what I do is he'll send me stuff and then I'll work on it on my own, basically in my room, just listening to songs over and over again and coming up with ideas. And then I will bring them to him. And he also has a lot of movement ideas for himself um, and choreographs a lot of his own material. It's a really nice collaboration because he doesn't, he's not all over me at all he basically not always, but often is good with what I'm making.
0: You know, w- we like to talk on this show quite a bit about limitations and about how limitations in many ways are inspiration points for creativity. Right. Cause, um, And on some level, any conceptual decision we make imposes limitations. So what were some of your limitations when working on American Utopia that you had to kind of reckon with in the bodies?
1: Well, it's a funny question because when David presented the project to me in the beginning, which was a concert, not a Broadway show, he had been, let's see, how can I describe this? Over all the shows I had done with him, he had every single show stripped away something on stage. And it became this progression till when we got to American Utopia. He said, you have no spatial limitations anymore. Hmm. I'm going to put everybody on a harness, in a harness, so there's no platforming, there's no mic stands, there's no none of the slop of the ubiquitous shit in the rock band space that we're supposed to ignore for some reason.
0: The monitor speakers. Yeah, the, all those yeah.
1: things are gone. But... <laughs> he basically took away my spatial limitations. So I was very used to having the platforming, the mic stands, all that stuff. I'd made dances with mic stands and dances with platforming and all those limitations are so fun. He took them away and said, empty room, go for it. Everybody can dance, go for it. So my only limitations were training mm. for the most part.
0: Right, because most of the performers are not trained dancers. Exactly, in the show, right? uh,
1: only two of them are trained. And he's the lead performer, and he is not a trained dancer. Although he, I would, I've been asked many times, is he a dancer? And I think if we could define being a dancer as someone who, who's expressive with their body, uh, absolutely. It's yes, <laughs> <I mean>, clearly. <laughs> clearly. Can he do uh, 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 an arabesque into a triple tour? No, but who wants him to? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Um, so you knew from the start they would be wearing their instruments, right? We
1: knew it, yes. He told me a couple things when we started, and they were the I, that thing of when you make a piece, there's like some very simple beginning points. None of them went away, which was kind of interesting. Everybody would be wearing gray suits. The stage would be empty. We would be in a box. Um, the chain was going to be walls, but we had to switch it to chains because of a practical issue on tour. So basically, it reads as a box. Most of the time, uh, the floor would be white and everyone would be completely untethered. Those things never went away. That was the DNA of the piece. And there also became the meaning of the piece, this sense of dancing in a community as a utopian image, I believe, is what he was working on or what it became.
0: When you're... Choreographing for a rock concert, I know it eventually became a, a Broadway show. So either way, are are you thinking about those kinds of ideas of meaning? Are they shaping the movement that you're developing? Or no, <laughs> yeah,
1: no. <laughs> no. I'm focusing on expressing the music. I really think that is my main focus. And th- when I say that, that is such a broad response because. It's like Balanchine, you know, talked about expressing Stravinsky. Um, what are you expressing? I mean, there's the psychology of the music, there's the accents, there's the rhythm, there's the color of the notes, there's the density, there's the weight, there's the texture, there's the meaning, there's the tonality. I mean, there's so many aspects to it. And I'm intuitively expressing something I want to express from that. Something, anything. Another choreographer would express something else from it. Right.
0: So when you're developing the choreography on your own in, in a room with a, I guess we don't use boom boxes anymore, but you know, I think <laughs> of it as, as a boom box from all those yeah. sort of 80s dance movies, right? Yeah. It, you know, is it that you suddenly sort of intuitively do something with your arm yeah. and then you say, oh, that's interesting. What's that gesture? And then you refine, like, how does the physical... Well-
1: Often it's not that. It would be, that is more like making movement material, which sometimes I do, but I would give you an example. Um, It's more uber than that. So what's the uber statement of this music? Like, do you know the song Dance Like This? Yeah, of course. Okay, so in Dance Like This, the first time I heard it, you know, I'm hearing demos, so they're not finished, but I hear a drum machine. I not just hear a drum machine, but I hear David Byrne using a drum machine, which is funny. Right. You know, this is a person who I know has a decades-long experience with a certain kind of drumming and, and dancing and, you know, mundo You know, he was just like so into that world. So I know when he chooses a drum machine, it has meaning. So what I hear is reiterative ideas, something that's reiterative, that's not changing that is machine-like, that has uh, no, no variation. And it's almost cartoonish. So I came up with the idea immediately that we would do, the performers would actually, and this was very hard for them to do, even though it sounds simple, execute a phrase of movement that just was two things. It was only two things, so like it would do one, two and then it would reiterate that one two and they would all have different ones but they would happen simultaneously and then I asked David could we possibly have a break of silence in the middle of the whole thing could we have two bars four bars we call it two dancer eights or four bars (laughs) uh of silence in the middle yes he said that's fine This is like how we talk to each other. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so next time I hear it, it, the silence is there. And the reason I wanted it is because I wanted to do the reiterative dance phrase in the silence so the audience gets to feel the drum machine without hearing it. Mm. And they're kind of programmed. And so that's the quote unquote joke. I don't know if it's a joke exactly or just a perspective that has comedy to it.
0: Well, the moment gets a laugh usually, doesn't it?
1: It always, 100%. It makes me right. so happy because I think I'm a funny choreographer, but <laughs> I don't know if I get credit for that. But yeah, something like that. So I, So dance like this, I hear reiterative. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then I go, how do I choreograph that?
0: It's interesting, you know, the, the the one that I was thinking about, in part because I rewatched watched it um, with my daughter this morning, is oh, uh, E. Zimbra. You okay, know, E. Zimbra. When, when we finally get the whole band comes out, right? And then we have these sort of um, teams of musicians. The percussionists are in one group, the guitarists are in another, and then the two dancers are, I think, stage left doing a, a separate kind of movement, right? Yep. Uh, how did that concept for that song and the sort of moving... Almost kind of drumline choreography develop.
1: Yeah. Um, Izimbra is, for me, one of the really, really brilliant songs in the show. Every time I hear it, after thousands of times, I stand up and dance. I just can't not. It's such a great song, and it's the data. it's lyrics. What struck me initially about Izimbra was its complexity. It's kind of the opposite of Dance Like This, which has no complexity, and that's the point. This is so deeply complex musically, what's going on. The drummers are so brilliant in it. How do I show that? So I kind of made a three ring, it's actually a four ring circus, that there's four different things happening simultaneously and that you can, almost like a piece of music, you can listen to the drums, you can listen to this, you can listen to all these parts that with the dance, you could see all these things simultaneously happening that describe or attempt to describe what's going on musically and its spirit and its sense of joy And I would almost say love in its joy of music. It's so deep to me. So I tried to show that somehow through the best that everybody could be in those moments. So the drummers are not dancers, but I could create like a circle of love with them. And I'm just introducing them. So I wanna be very simple. I don't want to get too busy with them yet, because it's all going to roll out over time. And I knew it was going to be early. Um, I had a sense, you know, December is going to be early. It just is, you know, it gets the audience up. This is what I mean about working with David for a long time, is that I kind of these things are really helpful to know. The dancers, I gave some really, really complex movement material. That material I had developed over a long period of time with my own company. There's a lot of D- DNA from my company, Big Dance Theater, in the piece.
0: And one of your dancers uh, works with Big Dance Theater, right?
1: Yeah, Chris. Yeah. And he's the quote-unquote dance captain, so he his body is basically an archive. Imagine it's like a thing in a library, the drawer that you pull out with all the books. <laughs> yeah. So much fun. So, yeah, and that material, I mean... Really, Isaac, this material, some of it is so old in this, to me, really beautiful way. Like that material originally was inspired by a Chris Marker movie. Like if, if anybody knew all the references.
0: Wait, wait, which Chris Marker movie?
1: <laughs> Saint Soleil.
0: Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess if it was La Jetée, they'd be just holding still because
1: it's all <laughs> yeah, right. <freeze> frames, right? <laughs>
2: We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Annie B. Parson after this. Do you have questions about the creative process? Whether you're trying to stick to a New Year's resolution about finally learning how to paint or struggling to finish the novel hanging out in your desk drawer, we'd love to help you can drop us a line at, working at slate.com or give us an old-fashioned phone call at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-9675. We're tired of looking at our computers, and we would love to get some phone calls. Okay, let's rejoin Isaac's conversation with Annie B. Parson.
0: American Utopia began as a concert and evolved into a Broadway show. Were, th- were there revisions that had to happen with the dance along the way to kind of make that uh, transition?
1: Yes, and I think we should define dance in a very large sense here in this conversation because I also staged the whole piece.
0: Yeah, sorry, I meant to clarify that earlier, that, that, that it's sort of all the staging, yes, is the whole, and, is and the whole really thing. And it's really
1: because David and I, I think, share this thing that we think of dance in a very broad sense. So when he asked me to choreograph it, he meant stage it. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, yes, what changed was when it came to Broadway, David, imagine, you know, he's a great experimentalist. So even though we think of Broadway as being less experimental, in his lexicon, it's an experiment. He's never done it. What is, how does this thing work? you know, this Broadway thing. Oh, people come, are they allowed to get up and dance? Like, what are the rules here? What's the contract with the audience? It's very different than a rock concert. So he decided that he wanted to be more narrative. Mm -hmm. So at that point he hired Alex Timbers, who we had both worked with on Here Lies Love. And I was involved too, um, developed some of the, what do you call banter? Right. Yeah. The sort of small, tiny monologues between some of the songs. So there used to be maybe three or four in the original rock show. And for Broadway, there were maybe 10. And then he wanted to add some songs and take some songs away. So there were some new dances. Mm.
0: Of course, you additionally have... (laughs) your own company the wonderful big dance theater that that you run uh, and that has a very different kind of artistic project from rock choreography and stuff like that uh, could you describe for our listeners who don't know big dance theater what it is and and sort of what it's a, what what you are doing with that company
1: yeah i mean when i began i was a choreographer who was working as a choreographer in theater at the same time in very downtown experimental theater, sort of rethinking classic plays like Pierre Gint and a lot of Chekhov and things like that. And I would say it got me thinking, but I really never thought about it. Um, It just got me moving dance into theater in a very sort of fundamental way. So I would say Big Dance, although we have made pure dance pieces for sure, It's usually has to do with an equality between dance, theater, design and a sense of it's not like you're dancing and talking, but the text and movement and musical composition, video work, all these things have an equality and that narrative is not the main receptacle for truth.
0: Well, I, I have to imagine it's a very different kind of process, though, when you're when you're developing work for big dance. You're the primary creative force. You're it's your company. The ideas start with you, et cetera. So so can you tell me a little bit about like sort of what that process is like, how it usually begins? Uh... Yeah,
1: it begins with a fascination with something it, not an idea, never with an idea like you know, community or, you know, something like that. It would begin more with with either a text that I'm really interested in, a movie script I'm really interested in, a series of actions, gestures, even I've made a piece based on neoclassic uh, Balanchine's work. You know, it could really begin with anything. And then the process has to do, it's very, very collaborative with, performers who have the kind of training that involves, you know, this combination of all the arts. So there aren't just dancers and actors, but they've, they're good at everything.
0: So, uh, with big dance, are you still sort of working out the movement on your own and then setting it and adapting in the room or it's or does it come out of the room? Are you really inventing on the fly?
1: So it's really different. That's a huge difference with my company. I really don't make very much material for my own company at all. It has to do with that process, that experimentation in the room with these incredible performers that I would more give them a movement problem to solve, a form to play with, or what writers call a prompt, Mm -hmm. that is often formal. Like make a, you know, eight count phrase that has an accent on the six and the seven and dance it backwards you know what I mean so they're just going to come up with better stuff than me Mm. when I work with performers like in American Utopia they don't have the training to make things that's a real training
0: so and then you're you're editing and kind of collaging that yeah together Mm -hmm. so I was thinking about like you know you 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 built a piece where the text is taken from Samuel Pepys's diaries um and in some of the text, he is talking about dance, but it's not always it's not like you're literally representing what he's talking about in the movement, uh, if I remember correctly. And so I was just sort of curious about, like, what some of the prompts were that generated the movement for that show as an example.
1: So, you know, his his diaries are are they're tomes. There's so much of it. The man was so generative, which is why I was attracted to him, because I'm fascinated by generativity in general in human beings. And so I, I was attracted to the diaries, but I was really interested in his wife, who he writes about a lot. So here's an example to answer your question. I kept reading in the diaries for her, uh, find, how to find her. She seemed so erased. And I had this idea that she must have written a diary herself. And I wanted to present her on stage somehow. But I really had only known her through him. And I wanted to know her through her. So I wanted to represent Elizabeth Pepys. At the time, I was reading Jill Johnston, the great critical thinker around experimental dance in the 60s. I thought, why don't I have Jill Johnston write her monologue? Mm. So, But Jill Johnston, of course, has died. So <laughs> what I did was-
0: Slight, slight. we talk about limitations in cre- creativity, right? And that's, yeah, that's right. one real limitation. The writer you want one. to use is dead. <laughs>
1: But no problem, because I wrote into one of her texts. So I basically took a text that reminded me of Elizabeth Pepys, and I wrote a monologue. Me and Jill wrote the monologue together uh, for Elizabeth Pepys. And for the last monologue by Pepys, I used, instead of his diaries, I used something from Euripides, and because it's so beautiful, you know, there's a lot of borrowing of material. <laughs> um, because I'm reading a lot. And you know how that is when you're reading and then you're mixing, yeah. your books get mixed up.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> and then you sort of have to find how to link these different moments of text, how they go together, how they made yeah.
1: into. A thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Most of us have moments where the creative well dries up a bit and you feel spent or you feel blocked on a project and, and don't know how to move forward. How do you navigate those moments? How do you kind of jump start the engine and, and, and break through that?
1: I haven't necessarily had one and I'm wondering as you say that if it's because I really think little in very small nuggets of ideas mm. I Think of cells of movement. So I think of things. It's so tiny that I feel like anything could be the beginning of something.
0: So you mean just like because it's it's a little movement that might be then part of a larger dance or a little fragment of text that might connect to something bigger. And just by keeping the focus on the smaller things, it sort of prevents that from happening.
1: Yeah, but it's not a it's not it's not a strategy. It's right, 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 right. Like I'm really, I'm going to make a piece that's like 50 people moving in unison for an hour. I've been trying to make this piece for a really long time. And I don't have an hour of unison movement. It's going to take me forever to make it. And it's very intimidating. But I do have like six seconds of movement that I know is going to be really cool. And so for some reason, I'm fine.
0: Incredible. Well, Annie B. Parson, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your processes here
1: on Working. Isaac, thank you. It's such a joy to talk to you.
2: So, in this conversation, Annie said one of the funniest things I've heard in a long time when she described herself out in the world observing as though she were stoned.
0: Yeah, I laughed pretty hard off Mike when she said that. Um, But I think I understood what she meant. I don't get stoned a lot these days, but I did quite a bit in college and in my early 20s. And it certainly leads you to find unexpected connections between things and to hyper focus on something you're interested in to the exclusion of all else. And that's not a bad way of describing a lot of the early part of creative work when you're just starting on a process or just getting inspired to do something and that's probably part of why part of why so many artists throughout time have abused substances <laughs> to help enable their creativity
2: I get the sense that Annie B. was joking, but I also think that there's something really honest in what she's saying. That kind of close attention is a significant part of your creative work. You know, painters and sculptors have to look closely. I think that writers do, too. It just makes sense that Parson would find inspiration or idea or just a spark in watching the movements of bodies.
0: Yes, I found that really inspiring, Personally, you know, the uh, the part she said about not getting creatively stuck at first, you know, I was like, what the heck is she talking about? But then as she talked about it. I was like really inspired by that, that you can find inspiration kind of anywhere if you focus on it deep enough and then have the faith to follow that wherever it leads you. You know, and she's had a long and storied career. She has the confidence to just know that if she's interested in something, she's going to find something interesting to do with it. And a lot of her pieces with Big Dance Theater seem to start out with a few creative impulses that don't necessarily quite cohere at first. And then finding that coherence is part of the process of making the work. And as I've said on the show before, I, I struggle with having that faith that I can just go down a rabbit hole. And when I come out the other side, I will have found something good. I asked
2: you at the top of this conversation about the sort of model of Balanchine as sort of the great dictatorial choreographer, in part because what I heard in this conversation is Parson describing herself as someone who is really given to collaboration. That even within her own company, she talked about her role not as being the one in charge assigning movements to her dancers but as someone who's involved in kind of instructing or challenging her dancers to solve specific problems or interrogate specific ideas that she personally finds interesting.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, not everyone works that way, but it is worth remembering that directors and choreographers don't always have this kind of auteur model that we have drilled into us from popular culture and I think people's kind of press operation where it's like the idea springs like Athena from Zeus's brow. And then you have to kind of force everyone to do the thing that you want to do. And that's really wrapped up in... 19th century ideas of what art and artists are because the job of the director was essentially invented in the 19th century. And so it has those ideas baked in. And a lot of times actually when you're in charge of a collaborative creative process, the most important and difficult work that you do is creating the environment that allows other people to do their best creative work. And then you take that work and you build off of it, you refine it, you suggest things, you know, you make something out of that. And I certainly feel like when I'm at my best as a director, That's what I'm doing. It's not that I'm coming up with every idea. It's that I'm creating this sort of, I don't know, fertile soil where other people's ideas are growing.
2: And getting out of the way. Yeah. 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 I definitely recommend spending some time on the internet, as I did after hearing this conversation, watching Annie B's work. But one of my favorite moments in your interview was that moment where we got to hear some of it. There's something really fascinating to me in Parson aiming for a moment of levity and in, in choosing to describe herself as a funny choreographer.
0: I know, right? I mean, we always associate experimentalism, intelligence, rigor, or, uh, whether aesthetic or conceptual, and the seriousness that it takes to make a really good work of art. We think the sign of that is that the end result has to be really serious, too, or perhaps even dour, or perhaps even boring or austere and unapproachable. And that is just not. The case. I think a lot of artists are afraid of being funny because they want to be taken seriously. And then viewers and critics like us can be complicit in that because we don't always realize how hard it is to be funny. So, like in my book, this comes up a lot with Marilyn Monroe because her peers at the actor studio did not take her seriously as an actor, in part because they did not value those comic performances in some like It Hot or Gentlemen Only Prefer Blondes. But if you watch those movies today, you're like, it, it takes a true artist and craftsperson to be able to pull off the stuff that she has to do in those movies. Um, and I think, you know, also of, of your work. I mean, your new novel has a seriousness of purpose and craft, and it also has this great strain of mordantly funny satirical humor. I mean, you must think about these things in your own work as well.
2: Well, that is kind of you to say. I definitely think... I felt like my new book cracked me up, and I really wanted it to crack the reader up. But I think that, as you're saying... We associate a kind of seriousness of purpose with a seriousness of text. And um, we have this idea that if we're laughing, it's somehow suspect or it's lighter. Um, But I think, as you say, it takes real intelligence to be funny. I wondered, listening to this conversation, what someone who works in performance is doing with their quarantine This has been such a terrible time for Broadway, for all sorts of live performance. How does a choreographer keep busy?
0: Well, the good news for Slate Plus subscribers is that you'll get quite a bit of an answer to that in that segment that includes, uh, you know, what... She's working on some stuff Paul Lazar is working on, a, a a book project, you know, all sorts of things. And, of course, we also touched on it a little bit in the interview with her, her piece Six Feet that is blending together footage from earlier work and, you know, new original text and stuff like that. So, you know, I do think that... Um, there are still ways to keep creative and keep creatively refreshed, even when you cannot actually meet with people and do the work that you're used to doing.
2: So, Isaac, speaking of being creatively refreshed, I haven't seen you in probably six weeks' time because you, you were meant to be finishing up a revision of your book. Tell me how it went.
0: You know I I got it in so that's a plus. Uh no, the last time I was on this show I think I was really in a pit of despair. I don't know if you reach this point with leave the world behind, but I I had just gotten to the revision where you stop enjoying revising the book. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, but one of them is like whether you're a writer or not and you're listening to this. Imagine a book and you read it five times in three months. By the fifth time, you're not actually going to enjoy reading that book, even if you're the one who wrote it, you know? And um, it's a big book, so revision takes a long time. You know, there's all sorts of complications with pandemic parenting and Zoom school and the holidays were in the middle of it. It was just rough. But um, as we got into the last couple weeks before I handed it in, things got a lot easier. I started feeling a real sense of accomplishment that I had made the book tighter by about 15,000 words. That I had made it better and clearer. I had brought sort of some thematic threads more to the fore, so the reader could notice them. And I'm I'm feeling really good about it. There's still more work to do. I'm going to get a line edit back later this month, and you know, then we just move on to the next step of the process. So I am feeling a lot better about it. But uh, uh, the, for now, this was for now. <laughs> you for <are>. now, <laughs> yeah. But this was this was definitely the hardest part of the revising process that I've had to go through on a kind of emotional level. I mean, did you reach that point with Leave the World Oh yeah, Behind? of course, uh, absolutely.
2: Absolutely. I mean, with all three of the books, yeah. And the way that I usually describe it to anyone who cares to hear me describe it is not as a marathon, but as sort of like a succession of marathons. It's like you run the marathon, you get through that final mile, and you have that weird euphoric moment, and then you find out like two weeks later that you actually have to run the marathon again. Um, And that goes on and on until you get to publication, because as you know, because you have published a book before – you're reading and rereading that book in uh, so many versions for so long. So, you know, it can really tax your patience for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, the nice thing with the world only spins forward is because it was an oral history. It wasn't my own writing. And so, you know, you can find new delight in some of the things other people said, but there was definitely a point where Dan and I emailed each other somewhere in the copywriting process. And he was like, I can't read this book again. Like, I just can't do it. It's too, it's too much. Um, yeah. No matter what, you'll get sick of it. Cause it's such an iterative process.
2: It's just, you know what? I just, I, I, I have to thank you now for pointing me to Annie B. Parson because I really did spend like 45 minutes looking at her work on the internet this morning. And I just felt like I wanted to dance out of my office and as far away from my computer as possible.
0: Absolutely, and listeners should Google her name and then uh, just click on the video tab and watch whatever you find.
2: And dance away. We hope you've enjoyed this show, and if you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, then you'll never miss an episode. I'm going to give you one final pitch for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast bonus episodes of shows like slow burn and dear prudence and you'll be supporting the work we do here on working it's only a dollar a dollar for the first month to sign up go to slatecom slash working plus
0: thanks to annie b parson and to our amazing producer cameron drews we'll be back next week with june's conversation with the set decorator beth Kushnick. until then get back to work